Okay, uh, good. We'll, we'll go ahead and use it then. I, I'm a little bit hurt, Robbie, that you left out a, a, a key part of the introduction, and that is that I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan and terrible at Ted Lasso trivia. So Robbie and I were a team last night uh, for a Ted Lasso trivia thing, and I contributed exactly nothing to, to our answers, and Robbie was just rocking it with all those details. So, um, <laughs> well, we did, but you were on your own. Other tables had five or six people, so um, it, was, it, it was stacked against us from the beginning. But uh, great, to, great to be with you all, and um, you know, like Robbie said, I'm going to talk a little bit uh, right now about uh, kindness in an age of outrage, and um, uh, it, it, is a, it is an age of outrage, right? Uh, is Philadelphia, are people mad in Philadelphia like they are? in Nashville and on Twitter. Yeah, okay, so Philadelphia and Twitter are you know, similar dynamics going on. Uh, so I, I, I came across this meme on the internet not long ago, and it, well, it was actually in 2020, so it was several months ago, and it was a picture of, of um, five portable bathrooms at a construction site lined up together and they were all on fire. The, the five portable bathrooms were up in flames and the, the caption said, if 2020 were a scented candle, um, that's what it would look like. So, so I'm texting back and forth with a friend um, and actually I got, I got another text from this friend yesterday um, indicating that another pastor is suing him. Uh, <laughs> suing him essentially for hurting his feelings. And, and um, so this same person who's getting sued, and he's going to win the case, by the way. He didn't, he's actually the victim in this scenario. But, but, but uh, in any event, I was texting back and forth with his friend uh, a couple of months ago. And he said, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for 2020 to end. Now, that was two years or two months ago um, in, in, you know, August or September of 2021, he said, I can't wait for 2020 to end. I said, you mean 2021? He said, no, I mean 2020, and I don't think it's going to end until somewhere around 2030. Um, and so what he's saying is we're kind of in a new normal um, where the toothpaste has been let out of the tube and the toothpaste is made of outrage and being easily offended and retaliation and resentment and um, you know my latest book project is is about gentleness and it's been really interesting how like Ted Lasso and Fred Rogers people you guys know Fred Rogers right Pennsylvania native so he is from Pittsburgh though sorry um, you know those people just want to gobble up as much as they can on the fruit of gentleness right um, you don't want to be the person who writes a book on gentleness in the same year that Dane Ortland releases Gentle and Lowly. I'll let you know that. But, but, but the appetite for, for that subject is very significant among what I believe to be a silent majority of people. But then you go on Twitter, uh, and, and you know, people are quoting, you know, putting quotes up about you know, the fruit of the spirit of gentleness is gentleness. And somebody will like put like a middle finger up there, you know, like this is the time to stand up. This is the time to be prophets. This is the time to, you know, take down, um, you know, 
whoever the offensive person or party or organization is, right? And this is not at all to say that that there shouldn't be accountability uh, in leadership. Of course there should be accountability in leadership, but not to Twitter. Not to Twitter. Twitter usually gets it wrong. Social media usually gets it wrong. The closer you are to this situation, the more qualified you are. The further you are from the situation, the less qualified you are to speak into it as a prophet. Okay? But that's the climate we're in, where people deputize themselves as prophets from a distance, and they get massive followings. And, you know, we were talking about, I was talking with, with, with a friend the other day about the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which, which I think is very helpful in a lot of ways. I, I haven't met a church leader who hasn't gobbled that up, but I think the, personally, I think the podcast should have stopped after about two episodes. Because what was initially very helpful has now become voyeuristic. And, and, and you go online and you've got even pastors saying, can't wait till the next episode, like we are with Ted Lasso. Can't wait to see what else Mark Driscoll did wrong and how that church over there failed at the gospel. And, and it's a really easy way to stop looking at ourselves. It's a really easy way to, to say, well, the problem with the world is those people and those churches. And that's dangerous. And so, so what I want to talk about is not so much the outrage that's out there as much as the outrage or the seas of outrage that are in here, right? Because last I checked, Jesus says, check yourself first. Last I checked, Jesus said, when you see problems in other people, look at them as if it was a speck. Now, it's, it's cruel to leave a speck in somebody else's eye when you have the power to remove it. Because a speck can lead to an infection, and an infection can lead to blindness. But last I checked, Jesus said, when you see a problem in somebody else, regard it as a speck. When you see a problem in yourself, look at it as a log. Look at it as a plank. See yourself in the same way that G.K. Chesterton did when the London Times asked him to write an essay about what's wrong with the world, and the essay read, and, you know, be patient, I'm going to read you the whole essay. Dear sirs, what's wrong with the world? I am, period. So now is your opportunity to leave because that's what I'm going to talk about if you don't want to talk about you. Okay, so Tim Kreider from the New York Times calls this modern climate, and this, by the way, was, this, by the way, was about um, 10 years ago that he wrote this. He wrote this kind of prophetically. He calls it outrage porn. And his example was the letters to the editor that were being received by the New York Times. And he says, so many of these letters to the editor and comments, especially on the internet, have this tone of thrilled vindication. These are people who have been vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. Some part of us loves to feel right and wronged. It's outrage porn selected specifically to pander to our impulse to judge and punish, to get us off on righteous indignation. I think he's right. Objectifying outrage is, is in many respects, no different than engagement with pornography. 
Because what, what happens is you're objectifying and dehumanizing somebody else to get a cheap thrill while making zero commitment to that person yourself. It's uncovenanted judgment. And that's the climate that we live in, and churches are susceptible as well. But what the scripture does is invites us to be counterculture in a culture of outrage. And so that brings me to a few words from the Apostle Paul as he writes to a young pastor, Timothy. He's trying to mentor, uh, you know, this young man, Timothy, is going to be one of his protégés. He's currently one of Paul's traveling companions, kind of a, a son in the faith, as, as you all know, no doubt. He says this in 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 8. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, the Greek word for sound could also be translated healthy. The healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Paul's never hesitant to be direct. He didn't beat around the bush. He just named it like he saw it. This person has an unhealthy craving, not tendency toward, but craving for, craving, appetite, desire for controversy and for quarrels in church. So this isn't a new problem. And these quarrels are about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Okay, so these words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and friction. Who has missed out on that party in the last two years? Has anybody missed out on the party that that the Apostle Paul just described of envy and suspicions and slander. We, we've all been part of that party, haven't we? So what is Paul doing here? He's encouraging a different way. This craving he writes about for controversy and quarrels and constant friction, he says, is not only unhealthy, it's also saying there's nothing of Jesus in it. Well, but Jesus flipped over tables, but you're not Jesus. But Jesus name-called with the scribes and Pharisees, but you're not Jesus. That's the difference. If we don't want to be crucified for our sins, because Jesus was crucified for our sins, then we cannot, also, we cannot on the other hand, assume the privilege of being able to put other people in their place like Jesus did, because we are not the Christ. Humble yourself. He doesn't say humble other people. He says humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So Paul's going straight after sibling discord in the body of Christ, and he's saying there is no place in the body of Christ, for sibling discord, at least not for chronic sibling discord. Of course, there are going to be spats. Of course, there are going to be disagreements when you put Jews and Gentiles and men and women and slave and free, you know, Galatians 3, 28, 
under the same roof, in the same community, in a covenanted way, all equals, all on level playing field at the feet of Christ. Of course, there's going to be friction and awkwardness, but chronic, chronic controversy and quarrels is not of Jesus. If we love the truth, then we're going to love each other. That is a necessary byproduct. And if we don't get around to loving each other, we do not love the truth. We are using the truth to punish, but we are not loving the truth about which Paul says in another place to Timothy, the goal of the commands of Scripture is love, right? If you're keeping the Bible, if you're, if you're obeying the Bible, it means you're loving God. It means you're loving your neighbor. That's how Jesus summed up the entire teaching of Scripture, is it bears the fruit of love. So, some positive examples I'll get to in a second, but let me just point out, I think, what's already obvious to all of us. Partisan politics are perhaps, in, in, in our part of the world, are perhaps the biggest detriment, the most significant detriment to what Paul is calling for here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's a fact. This is true in Philadelphia. It's true in Nashville. It's true in New York City. It's true in San Francisco. It's true in Little, Ar Little Rock, Arkansas. It's true in St. Louis, Missouri. It's true in Idaho. You, you will have in any city in America a multitude of churches, and, and let's just take two of them. These two churches both believe the Bible from cover to cover. Both, the, the, their membership, part of what it means to be a member is to embrace the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, every word that has proceeded from the mouth of God and every word that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and made it into Holy Scripture is from God. And we are under it. We are beneath it. We are, we are led and carried by its authority. It is full of grace and truth, just like Jesus was. And there is nothing that is revisable in there because it's God's word. We don't make him, he makes us. We don't revise and edit him, he revises and edits us. That's, that's how it works. And so everybody, let's say both of these churches are churches of 100 people. 100 out of 100 people in both churches believe the Bible 100% to be God's inerrant and infallible word from cover to cover. Okay, so now we've got that established. The members of this church, 95% of them will say, I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian and be a Democrat. And then in this church, in a different zip code, Believe the Bible with the same intensity. I don't know how you could call yourself a Christian, 95% of them will say, and be a Republican. Okay, so we have two choices. Either choice one, one of these groups doesn't know how to read the Bible. Or one of these groups is rejecting parts of the Bible. One of these groups is unfaithful. Or one of these groups is unintelligent. 
I don't think we want to do that. The only other alternative is to say both of these groups get some things right, and both of these groups have blind spots. And both of these groups, as a result of the blind spots, need each other. And will be less healthy without one another's perspective and, and, and the tension of being in community together. So some positive examples. If we go to the Bible, we've got David and Jonathan. Very different socioeconomically. David is the son of a shepherd. Jonathan is the son of a king. They become the closest of friends. Their lives together and individually are oriented around who God is. Um, politics. So think about Jesus' um, disciples, his, his, his group of 12. 12 disciples. In that group of 12, you have uh, two men who are one another's political opposites. You've got Simon, who's a zealot, which, which would have been the equivalent of a first century libertarian. The less government, the better. The more personal freedom, the better. So you've got Simon the zealot, and, and no taxes for Simon the zealot. That's, that's the ideal political vision. And then you've got Matthew, the tax collector, who sees things and, and, and conducts his life and his career in, 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 in many ways, in an opposite way politically as Simon the Zealot. So what we have here is a dynamic where in the Bible we have no record of Simon ceasing to align with the Zealot party, and we have no record of Matthew ceasing to align with the Roman tax collector profession. In fact, Matthew throws a party for his colleagues. Jesus shows up with the other disciples. So we have no record of either one of them departing from their political um, loyalties. We also have no record of these two guys getting in a fight with each other over politics. And they spent every day together for three years. What we do have record of them doing is, is them both together following Christ, hanging on to the words of Christ, living together, serving together, healing people in the community together, preaching the word of God together, and eventually dying together. And four Gospels have been entrusted to us, four Gospel accounts. Only one of those four points out the fact that Matthew was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot. Which of those four Gospels is that? It's the Gospel according to Matthew. There's a message in there for, for 21st century American partisan Christians. Get the partisanship out of your Christianity, or it will soon cease to be Christianity. You will soon cease to follow Christ, and instead you will use him as a mascot for your power agenda or for your takeover agenda or whatever your agenda is. If it is easier for somebody to guess what my politics is than it is for them to guess what my religion is, then my politics have become my religion. 
It is so important for the American church to find repentance there. Paul's letters, many of them begin, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So who's the R? Who's the us that he's talking about? So grace to you was a standard salutation in a letter from a Greek to a Greek. Peace to you was a standard salutation in a letter from a Jew to a Jew. And so Paul is doing something very subversive. Even in the way that he opens his letters, red state and blue state to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Black and white to you, male and female to you, affluent and poor to you, living in a mansion and living on, a street, on the streets to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What would I do without C.S. Lewis? But C.S. Lewis isn't reformed. He wasn't even a Calvinist. What would I do? What would we PCA people, Robbie and I, and I don't know if anybody else, what would we do without C.S. Lewis? We would have nothing to say to the surrounding culture if we didn't have C.S. Lewis. And Tim Keller, who would readily admit that he is a parrot of C.S. Lewis half the time. He says, when I don't have time to research and write my sermon, I just look up what C.S. Lewis said, because that's what I'm going to end up, you know, spending 15 hours getting to anyway. Right? So, so what, what, what would I do without C.S. Lewis? What would I do without my wife, Patty, who is a woman? I am a man. She brings a perspective that helps me understand over half of my church. What would I do without... Pastor Ronnie Mitchell, who's a generation ahead of me and is also a black man who has been a bivocational pastor at the same church for over 40 years, whose congregation has entirely been gentrified out of his neighborhood. They all still commute in because of the community from some of them 50 miles away, burning gas in their cars that they can't afford. And Ronnie works a full-time job as well so he can eat. I need that kind of pastor in my life as the guy who pastors one of the most affluent churches in one of the most affluent cities in, one of the most, in the most affluent country in the world. I have to have Pastor Ronnie in my life. What would I do without Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, even though he didn't sprinkle babies, and even though our views on church government are different, what would I do without Brennan Manning, the Roman Catholic who taught this Protestant more about the grace of God than any Protestant ever has? What would I do without Dietrich Bonhoeffer, even though his nationality is different than mine? You could go on. The, the power of the gospel overcomes partisan attitudes. If we go to Ephesians 2, we see how it works. You believe the gospel, right? So the good news there is the dividing wall of hostility has been removed between you, a sinful person, and a holy God. The dividing wall of hostility is no longer there because Jesus absorbed the hostility. 
on the cross. All of the universe's hostility, all of the hostility of, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit towards sin, which wrecks humanity and which wrecks truth and beauty and which wrecks creation, was absorbed by one man, Jesus Christ alone. The natural byproduct of this and the proof that you believe that is that dividing walls of hostility are also being broken down horizontally in our relationships. How can I see my brother in need and do nothing and say that the love of God abides in me, the apostle asks. It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. The power of the gospel overcomes partisan attitudes. It leads us to expand our definition of us and narrow our definition of them. So what does this look like or what can this look like out in the community? We all know that who have read the scriptures that to be an elder in the church of Jesus Christ, you have to have meaningful friendships with non-Christians. You have to. If your only friends are church friends, you're not ready to lead in the church of Christ yet. Because an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders, with those who don't believe as we do. There has to be a dynamic of following Christ into Luke chapter 15, verse 1, where we subject ourselves to criticism from church people for actively and openly and publicly welcoming sinners and eating with them. This is such a contrast to the vision, the small vision, that the scolding Pharisees put forth. Have you heard that prayer in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus describes a Pharisee standing up in the temple to pray, and, and literally in the Greek it says he prays to himself? His prayer is a pep talk to himself. His prayer is, is a means by which to, to address the small man that he is. Thank you, my God. He mentions God once, and then he mentions himself eight times. That I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And Jesus says, this man goes home condemned. And then there's another man praying in the temple, God have mercy on me, the sinner. I don't know why our English translations say a sinner, as if he's just putting himself in the company of sinners when the definite article is clearly there in the Greek. God have mercy on me, the sinner. This man is the one who goes home justified. This man who's been out of church and out of the temple for his entire life, this man who has systematically robbed his neighbors and been part of a system and been a perpetrator of a system of injustice, this man, and not the church guy, goes home justified. Few things are going to corrupt the Christian witness more than Christians who scold. I mean, how many changed lives, life testimonies have there been in our churches or in our lives or in our small groups where somebody said, I became an enthusiastic follower of Christ because a Christian or a group of Christians pointed their fingers at me and lectured me about my lifestyle. 
or lectured me about my politics or lectured me about my relationships. I've been in ordained ministry for over 25 years. I've been a Christian for over 35 years. I've never, never met a single person with that story. doesn't mean they don't exist. It just means that among the thousands of people that I've met who say a person or community of people loved me toward Christ, in spite of me, loved me toward Christ. I've heard thousands of those stories. I've never heard a story where, where, where somebody said, somebody scolded me into the kingdom of God, and it was just so meaningful. Now think about Jesus with the woman caught in the act of adultery. I've always wondered why they didn't drag the man out to, to publicly shame him as well. Generally, if somebody's caught in the act of adultery, they're caught in the act with somebody else, and yet she's the only one who's brought out by the powerful men in the community who want to make an example of her and who want to cancel her in, in a very, very painful and public way. And Jesus shows up, and you know the story. You know, the law says, Jesus, that if someone's caught in the act of adultery, we should put them to death. And so we're all holding our rocks, ready to do that. And he says, you're right, the law does say that. Whoever among you is without sin, you go first. And, and he's like, okay, he got us. Drop their rocks, they walk away, and the one man remaining is the one man who was qualified to execute her. And he did not. Instead, he asks her a question, is no one condemned you? No one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. Now go leave your life of sin. The, he does not leave her bad sexual ethics and her destructive sexual ethics alone. He doesn't not touch them, which is another way of saying he does touch them. He, he does speak into them. He does call for repentance, but there's a sequence there where, where and, and this, is, this is the pattern of the Apostle Paul, he puts the indicative before the imperative. He puts the who you are statement before the what you must do in light of who you are and how you must live in light of who you are first. The sequence really matters. I don't condemn you. That's our environment. That's our, that's our relationship. I do not condemn you now. Now, more than ever before, you have reason to envision a new life for yourself. Reverse the order of those two sentences and you lose Christianity, you lose Christ. Moralistic religion always starts with the imperatives. Here's the hurdle. Here's the law hurdle. Jump over it, and then we'll talk about whether or not you can be part of us. Jesus reverses that. He does that even with people who walk away, who refuse to repent, who refuse to bow the knee to Christ, a rich young ruler, right? You want to follow me? All right. You've been giving me your moral resume, all these commands I've kept since I was a child. Okay, there's just one more thing you lack. Get rid of all your money and just follow me. Come understand for me what, what true riches is. And maybe for others, it's give up something else. Give up your influence, your prestige, your, you know, your, your wardrobe, your, you know, whatever. Your partisanship. Give up something. But, but for this man, it was the thing that had him around that. He did not have money. Money had him, and money had him around the neck. And so he says, you've got to let it go. Follow me, and I'll show you what it means to really be rich. And it says the man walked away. He didn't walk away feeling scolded or condemned or shamed. He walked away, it says, sad. Why was he sad? Well, there's another detail in the narrative. It says when Jesus looked at this man, at this unbelieving man, it says he looked at him and loved him. 
loved him. What is the last name that Jesus called Judas in their last conversation with each other? As Judas is in the garden handing Jesus over to his executioners as the betrayer. What does he call him? Friend. Friend. Do what you came for. You can't make this stuff up. You know, C.S. Lewis says, the reason I'm a Christian, the reason I'm a Christian is because no human being could ever think this up. Every other religion and philosophy starts with the imperatives. And you have to leap the hurdle. You've got to, you've got to do the work. You've got to measure up according to the imperatives to even get to the question, can I belong? But the gospel says you belong. That, that, that's where it begins. You belong through faith. You belong through the work of another. You, you belong through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and, return, and coming kingdom of another. You belong now. Let's talk about the life you've always dreamed of but, but could never live up to. Let, let's talk about actually starting to move in that direction becoming conformed in the likeness of Christ. This liberates you guys so much how we are able to relate and minister to people. We are able, we are free. I dare say we are even required morally to invite our neighbors to belong with us before we invite them to believe with us and to continue to welcome them whether they believe with us or not ever. And of course, that doesn't mean you baptize unbelievers. It doesn't mean you invite unbelievers to the Lord's Supper. But everything else, fair game. Everything else, fair game. Jesus welcomed sinners. Jesus ate with them. Jesus says yes to an invitation to a tax collector party. He says yes to an invitation to a Pharisee dinner party, which is really a, a gotcha party, you know, where, 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 where they're going to ask him loaded questions in order to discredit him. He says yes. And then he gives us, Parables, not of one lost son, but of two lost sons in Luke 15. And the one that ends up being the most lost is actually the one who is most dedicated to family church life. It's crazy. And it's revealed in how much he resents the love of the father toward a prodigal. So I'll close with this. There's a guy that came into our church some time ago named Bill, and he, his very existence drew attention to him because, you know, he wasn't dressed like most people. He had this ratty t-shirt. He's wearing jorts. You remember jorts where you, you repurpose a pair of jeans and you cut them off and, and, and he's needle streaks on both of his arms and needle scars in both of his legs and on his neck and on his forehead, on his cheeks, reeked of nicotine. You could, you could smell the nicotine on, on Bill from 15 feet away. And you could tell he, he didn't really know how to behave in church because he, he was just kind of looking around while everybody's singing. And you guys ever think about how weird it must be for people who aren't used to it to walk into a room of a bunch of people singing off-key <laughs> to an invisible entity? You ever think about how weird that is to a person from the outside? And so he comes in, he's like, he's got this curious look on his face. And turns out that he came to church because the people at the recovery um, group 
told him to find some religion because if you find religion, your chances of not relapsing go up significantly. And we were the closest church, and so he just showed up, right? And so, so while we were singing, this guy that I'll call church guy taps me on the shoulder, and he's got his big black study Bible that's still got all the shine on it. looks like it's never been opened. Church guy brings a study Bible to church, and it doesn't look like it's been opened. That's about something other than wanting to worship God. So he says, Pastor, you see that guy over there? I said, yeah. You know him? No, I don't. Do you? Oh, no. I don't know him. But he clearly doesn't know how to behave or to dress in church. And have you smelled him? He smells like cigarettes, and the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he is clearly addicted to nicotine, and he is unsightly. And I think I'm going to talk to him about these things after the service. And I said, please don't do that. And then what I, what I, what I did was I found Mark, who I talked about yesterday, who became my best elder after he recovered from a legal heroin addiction called oxycodone. He recovered. And this was the guy that I handed over to people whose marriages were cratering and whose lives were falling apart from some kind of addiction. And they struck up a friendship. They became fast friends. Bill became a Christian as well. Through that friendship and through the life of our church, his wife, Anne-Marie, also became a Christian who was also coming off of a heroin addiction. They had two sons. Their first Sunday, she yelled four-letter words, you know, because, because her sons broke all the toys and bloodied other kids' noses on their first Sunday. And what happens? But the nursery, the person who's leading the nursery writes a personal note to her after she, you know, bellows out the S word and, and F bombs and walks out of the, the church with a tail tucked, like, like a dog with, with the tail tucked under its body in shame, like, oh, we'll never see her again. And the nursery director writes her this note and says, thank you for being so transparent and so real in church. We need that so much. You've helped me to be a more honest Christian. And of course, Anne-Marie comes back the next week, you know, with a strut, right? Because <clears throat> she knew she belonged. She knew the, somebody told her the indicatives come long before the imperatives do. What do you call it when a nicotine-addicted guy walks into a church because he's recovering from a heroin addiction? I call it sanctification. When you trade a heroin addiction for a nicotine addiction, I call that progress. Other people call it something else. Two people become followers of Christ because a handful of people put the indicatives before the imperatives. They didn't just say it. They demonstrated, I don't condemn you. We don't condemn you. And by the way, we're going to stand between you and the church guy. He's got his own issues. He's got his own addictions. He's addicted to himself. He's addicted to his pride. He's addicted to his weak righteousness. He's, he's addicted. 
to these things. Probably, because the statistics are pretty high, those are the guys who are also addicted to porn. Those are the guys who have the, the secret addictions and the way that they, they try to survive those addictions is to find somebody else to pile shame upon in order to transfer their own to someone else. And so the church guy, even though he's harder to love, needs to love just the same. In the same way that the elder brother needed the father's invitation, won't you come in? All I have is yours as well. Will you come in? And Jesus leaves us guessing on what happened next. But think about this. Back to us. Problem with the world. What's wrong with the world? I am. You know, we were the offenders, and Jesus loved us to the uttermost. The reason why any of us is here wanting to engage with the Word of God is because Jesus loved us. That desire to hear Scripture, that desire to be molded, informed and shaped by it, that desire to pass it on to others is because Jesus has said to us, I don't condemn you. Now, let's, let's talk about your thoughts and your words and your actions and the way that you do relationships. Let's talk about that, but don't forget, I don't condemn you. You know, Madeline Lingle famously said, we draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of that light. It started, though, with Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit could have legitimately, all three of them, you know, all three of him. I mean, how do you talk about the Trinity, who's one and three? Could have picked up a bunch of rocks and just finished us off. But, but instead, he chose to love us to life. And remember, we were, we were, we were just completely them. We, we, contemporary, angry, partisan American Christians, were the people that Jesus talked about at the end of the Great Commission. We talked about the ends of the earth. America's not, it's never been the center of the Christian story. America didn't even exist when, when the Bible was formed, except, except for natives that got marginalized and pushed out and are now suffering from deep, deep addiction and isolation and lack of care and lack of attention, right? That's how America began. And, and here we are, the ends of the earth. Jesus chose to love also in the same way that he chose to love Matthew, as well as Simon, and everyone in between. Jesus Christ, first century, let's just, let's just marinate on how much we have in common with him. First century, Middle Eastern, Jew, dark skin in all likelihood because of his ethnic descent, poor all of his life, homeless some of his life, despised and rejected by his peers, abandoned to the death by his closest friends, never spoke a word of English, didn't hang out with white people, was crucified by white people. How many of those things can be said about us? And yet, he says to his disciples, who like him are first century, Middle Eastern, Jewish, dark skin, mostly poor, certainly discredited, didn't speak English. 11 out of the 12 were 
martyred for their faith. The, the twelfth died in prison because of his faith. Just go get them too. The ends of the earth. I love them. And I say to them in the same way this father says to this, this elder brother, who by the world's standards shouldn't belong, all I have is yours. Will you come in? Will you enjoy this feast that is not only for this one, but also for you? And for any who would say, what's wrong with the world? I am. What's right with the world that can heal and mend what is wrong? Christ is. In Christ alone, our hope is found. And so I think that's the only answer to the climate that we're in. And I'm, I'm talking about not only the climate of of our culture, but, but the climate in our own hearts and in our own communities. And so pray that the Lord would take anything good and true that I've said and move it into my heart first and our hearts and anything worthless or useless or wrong-headed that I've said that we'll just forget it and, and move on from it. So uh, thanks for having me.